Welcome back to another episode of the Magnus and Marcus podcast. Joined as always by John Marcus. How are you doing, John? Doing great. Good to be back and tell everyone that we don't know anything we are talking about or is referred to coaching. So if you're still listening, kudos to you. That's right. <laughs> After our last podcast, John tried to run away every one of our listeners. An interesting yes. strategy. I like yes. it. Very interesting. Yeah. So. If you're still listening, uh, you're anti. Thank you. <laughs> you're, yeah, if you're still listening, you're resilient and anti-fragile. We'll say you, that's you, right. You can't be spooked. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I yeah. like it. All right. Well, well, this week we're going to talk about something you brought out, and um, it's basically being weird. Now, what yep. is what is weird? We'll start with. Uh, it's an acronym for Western Educated and from Industrialized Rich and Democratic Countries. So yep. why don't you tell us what that means? Well, recently in modern psychology, they've looked back and realized that the majority of samples that have been taken in the university or scholastic setting have been from people that represent that background. Now, unfortunately, that only makes up 15% or so of the world population, and yet we take these psychological absolutes based on these research and studies done as this is how all people are psychologically speaking, which, as we know, is a complete fallacy because you don't have the subtleties of these rich indigenous cultures represented or, you know, Native Americans or more impoverished countries where, you know, survival from day to day is at top of mind, and so you know, now they're starting to realize that human psychosis or what they so far have deemed as absolutes are not as absolute as they once thought. So, you know, I think he was talking to Steve a lot about that phenomena and how it relates to our biases and perceptions and coaching and training and adaptation. Yeah, you know, and, and as a coach and a scientist researcher, this one really strikes home with me because it's very true. So whenever you go into, you know, your first um, science class in, in grad school or even undergrad, like they always talk about how, well, research is done on college kids because they're the kids you can recruit. And having been through the recruiting process, like you take the kids that you can easily get. And that's the 18 to 22 year olds who are in the courses you're teaching or are in the courses that your friends are teaching. And you use those. Or as the, as the the defining people, or, yeah, or you bribe them with five to ten dollars cash to take this like you know survey, you know. It's like, <laughs> exactly, it, it's who are the yeah. young kids to bribe the the college kids with no money. <laughs> so, um, but but what happens is you create almost this whole research base around this. Now I know. I know a lot of good researchers try and branch out of this, but the, the, the kind of rule of thumb is that most of our, our knowledge, especially in the psycho psychological sciences, is, comes from this. Um, and you might be thinking like, okay, well, what does this have to do with coaching? Well, if you look at all of the psychology researches from that, but if you also look at the exercise phys, exercise science research, is the vast majority of studies come from you know, college-stage kids who are well-off and um, probably not that fit. 
Yeah, true. And I mean, sometimes you get sample sets where they'll take, you know, certain types of uh, well-trained athletes, so well-trained soccer players, and well-trained is a loose definition depending on, you know, what that uh, researcher is aiming towards or what, or maybe how it's related to the, you know, general population, or you'll get these well-trained distance runners or they'll do uh, resistance training. And so sometimes we get these studies come by or fly by where it's like, okay, well, protein synthesis is really important after, you know, an intense training bout and is published in, you know, a magazine or online on Twitter, but really the article was about protein synthesis is really important after an intense, you know, one rep max resistance workout. And then, but we take that as an absolute to apply to all exercises and all workouts and all types of training, whether it's aerobic, anaerobic, or a mixed type session. So I think sometimes it's, you know, understanding that research is just, please, as I always like to quote, Winston Churchill, something that should be on tap, but not on top. It should reinforce or make you think about what your training program or design is, but not direct necessarily or be the guiding light behind your training program and design where experience is rightfully placed in the driver's seat. Yeah. You you know, I I actually just published a blog on this, so you can check that out. Um, But I basically said the same thing in the sense that research, the science is the background information, right? It's not the prescriptive information. It's not what leads to the prescription, that's the experience in coaching and art, but it's that background information that's just there. And, you know, on this whole, whole weird phenomenon, I like to, I'll tie it into actually some of the research I'm doing right now for my PhD is we took, um, we took 10 of my college runners, right? And we had them do a traditional VO2 max test, which was basically a test exhaustion where Every minute, they increased the speed of the treadmill until they couldn't, right? And then they did a modified, newer VO2 max test um, where every two minutes, they were supposed to increase their effort a set amount. So we gave them a Borg scale of effort from 6 to 20 and basically said, you know, first two minutes run at 11, second two at 13, and so on until you're almost done. And then... Once they got to the end of 10 minutes, it was the goal was to either be exhausted or be able to kick for 30 seconds or whatever it is, be able to kick. And they got to choose their pace the entire time. And what we found is not that VO2 max is the be all end all, but out of our athletes, I think it was eight or nine out of 10 had higher VO2 maxes in the self paced one where they got to choose what pace to go and when to kick. And some were, I mean, we had one guy who scored at 82 max um, on the self-paced, and his his regular normal one was a 76. Yeah, it was is a brilliant illustration of how how if you had well trained actual well trained athletes. I mean, these were some of my top runners who are pretty good college athletes. well-trained athletes, how the, how the difference in, in the whole, you know, science research point was, was blatant. Like it was, 
It was essentially that when you gave the athletes some ability to function in the way that they would do in a race, right, where they had control of speed and were able to kick and all that, the the uh, the scores, the entire test came out completely differently than kind of the traditional method. And I think if you tie that back to this concept is that the the group individuals differ, right? If we took our average college age kid and just had them do both, there probably wouldn't be any difference. But because we had really well experienced runners, they were able to push to another level when they were given the ability to not just hang on, but the ability to change pace and kick when they need it. This also like relates to, you know, Something that's been on top of mind for me recently is this idea of toughness, this idea about what distance running really is. And, you know, distance racing, really, distance competition is being able to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And so you're going to get a completely different sample set if you take, you know, people who, oh, I work out five times a week for fitness and put them through, you know, a VO2 max study or, you know, a periodization study over time versus really well-trained competitive athletes who know how to be comfortable for long periods of time. I mean, you've heard, you know, stories about back in the early 80s, late 70s, or 60s even, like Prefontaine or Frank Shorter or those guys just getting on there and making their VO2 max test thing of toughness, like a competition of who can run as hard as possible to drop and let's just run really hard to see what my this gauge of VO2 max is. Now, and then we extrapolate that from a training standpoint, right? And we say, oh, well, here's in the nice profile chart, your paces for these types of reps. If you follow this, we can guarantee you adaptation. But I think that takes away a lot of the autonomy and also poses a lot of limitations on an athlete because that's what sport I've always preached is about. It's about transcending previous limitations. I mean, you know, whether it's competing on the day for the best competition or setting a PR that you've never done before, both bring a similar air to excitement, you know, winning a race or setting a a school record or personal record are all kind of equal platforms for saying, hey, good job today. And so, you know, we always want to, in my opinion, be cautious, filter the research, filter the data, filter how that was prescribed to just know it's not the absolute. I mean, the best, you know, in my opinion, data research is reading the books of, you know, legend or reading about the legends or coaches and what that mentality and, you know, philosophy of training or how that viewpoint was at the time. I mean, if you know, like Ron Clark was influenced by John Landy and, you know, Murray Halberg, and then, then you know Prefontaine was influenced by Ron Clark's front-running style, and then Bowerman was influenced by Lydiard, and Lydiard was influenced by his own experimentation on himself, and, you know, pupils, and da-da-da-da-da, you, know, you kind of see where they all came from, but if you just say, oh, man, Pre was an outlier, and I was just Pre, well, no, Pre, if you look at it, there's a lot of, um, you know, first-hand accounts of he actually wanted to be a Ron Clark, because that was the toughest, baddest guy in the room. He didn't want to ever lose. He was a lot more cutthroat competitive than Ron Clark he was. But I think, you know, when you understand that, even though you're taking that small sample, those guys are your outliers, and they're the 1% of training and racing, 
and then we try to base everything off it with our very average people, very average business owners who aren't going to break world records or aren't going to win Olympic gold medals. We say, well, you know, if this training camp does this, when we follow that system, then we'll be equally as good as, you know, um, uh, just, you know, my mind misses, misses the boat by about, you know, an hour or two. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it, it's interesting because, well, a couple things you got on there that I liked is it is a very copycat mentality. Um, and, and whether it's from the research side or the coaching side is, is it in, information gets disseminated and it's not a, it's not a democratic process, right? So, um, it's like you said, it's not, the, the point isn't to be like, oh, well, this really successful team or this really successful runner did this kind of training. Therefore, this training works. Therefore, we should all do this training. Like, that's the assumption that a, a lot of people wrongly make um, when they get into into coaching. And I think the way to prevent that is to, to see the story. Like you said, if you look and see how training programs evolved and how coaches took a little bit from this influence and went to this influence and then it evolved into this. Like that's the key to, to coaching in my opinion. Right. And it's also the relationship, you know, of the athlete coach and also the athletes buy-in or excitement about competing. I mean, Steve and I were talking offline before this and he's telling me about a breakthrough athlete of his on his Houston team. He was like, yeah, this guy at this, you know, preview race, was in the 80s last year and now this past season or past weekend or what have you is in the 20s. I go, well, it changed. Well, you're in 100 miles a week and you got really excited about being good and then all of a sudden that just was a big springboard. Now, you know, Steve, you're a good coach, but how much, you know, you coached him last year and he didn't get 20th and then this year he's able to get 20th because the imagination was really captured to run 100 mile weeks this summer and come in real fit and say, man, I'm going to go do this. You know, now, to say it's because Steve, you know, doesn't know his physiology is why this guy, you know, uh, wasn't as good last year is not – is foolish to say. It's like, no, this kid's imagination was finally captured to put in the tough, you know, consistent training that is a lifestyle and exciting to do rather than being an arduous test. And now how much of that is then related to the culture you create Steve, versus – how much you know in the exercise physics world. I mean, that are the intangibles and things we cannot define, but that make up the whole kind of really muddy nucleus that is, you know, or the pro or the electron cloud, so to speak, that is the, you know, uh, world of training and racing and adaptation and recovery and getting better, you know. Yeah, uh, no, that's a great point. I'm just going to go ahead and say that I was a horrible coach last year, and apparently now I'm a good coach. That's what changed. <laughs> With that particular athlete, you know. But then what about, I mean, well, we've all had this. An athlete has a breakthrough season and does really well, and then the next year they're year older, stronger, nothing's bad happened, and yet they can't get close to competing at the same level or intensity they did the year before. I mean, this is pointing cases like my wife, who I trained like two years ago, she ran – her first sub-16 at 5K on the track last year, man, it, you know, it was just awful. Like, 16, by her regard, 16.30, 16.20, she was bitter. Workouts were better. She was doing more volume, doing 
you know, recovering and adapting quicker, all from the science and training aspects where everything indicated you should be able to run faster than and be more competitive than the previous year. But it didn't happen because there are a lot of, like, emotional things going on and, you know, her work life and everything that is stress, high stressors and that kind of detracted from her ability to engage. So, again, it's not a perfect puzzle. Like, I'd always talk to coaches and like, oh, man, yeah, we got the best training or, man, oh, yeah, I know these, I got the workouts, the secret workouts from this guy or that guy. Oh, we're going to be good. And, like, that's a very, uh, you know, tight rope you're walking on because you're completely disregarding the very human and emotional aspect that training and good, you know, coaches and teams and cultures surround themselves with. If you look at any situation, whether it's, you know, the Australians in the 50s, the New Zealanders in the 60s, uh, you know, the Americans in the early 70s and 80s or the, you know, uh, the Brits at the same time frame, they had good teams around them or good you know, competitive sparring partners that really helped spur them along with an able coach. So, you know, again, take a step back and look at the 35,000 foot view rather than just saying, this study says if we do this, then we're going to guarantee PRs and improvement. <laughs> it's kind of like modern day snake oil, modern day, like, you know, people going around in town to town selling you this you know, potion that's going to cure all diseases and make you 10 times, 10 years younger and this and that. Like, you know, I always just shake my head and just wait to pass the experiential witness. Yeah. You know, it's funny because, you know, on that runner you gave, or that you mentioned, I gave the example of, um, he was actually a nine forties type two miler coming out of high school and steadily got better, but wasn't, wasn't great. And last year in track had a good season, but not, not fantastic. And then, as you said, this year he's been, been running as our number two man and, and all that good stuff. And the funny thing is, if you ask my grad assistant, for example, physiologically, he was ready to do this last year. But mindset wise, mentally, emotionally, confidence wise, it wasn't, it wasn't there yet. If that makes sense. I mean, his workouts haven't, haven't improved dramatically. I mean, they're better, but they haven't improved dramatically from where he was last track season, for instance. But the, those other components that you mentioned, that's, that's what changes, right? It's that mindset, that, that ability, that ability to see yourself competing against other people, that, that, um, that passion and almost having a purpose, um, bigger than oneself to get yourself through running a hundred miles a week in the summer of Houston is, is, is something that I think is underrated and, and probably the key determinant to set success, you know? Yeah, I, I agree hundred percent. I think mindset is where is the foundation mindset is, you know, the inertia, so to speak, you know, here's attitudes and everything, the old cliche, but there is truth to that cliche. I mean, it, it's the start of it. If you can't believe it, you can't achieve it, right? We've all heard these cliches, <laughs> but the truth is, as we know, right, from even just a physiological standpoint, like no matter how hard you run or how hard you exert, you know, a certain uh, perceived exertion, your body will pass out, your body will faint, your body will turn off. 
before, you know, you get to a real state of, you know, damage. Like we have all these automatic mechanisms in place, these safeguards in place that, you know, from a glycogen standpoint, you only can burn so much glycogen before your body is just going to shut it off and make you pass out because guess what? Your brain needs the glycogen and your heart needs the glycogen to stay alive. And so it's going to say, we're going to shut you down so, so we have more than enough able, you know, for us to survive. And that's, that's the same with anything. Like, you know, I'm at this time of the year where we've done all the work for the, you know, athletes with summer training who are in cross-country mode and, you know, early pre-competition and competition prep. And now it's like, a week to go or a month to go in our cross season. Now it's all about being comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's the conversations I've been having nonstop this week because all the athletes is like, Hey, we got races coming up. Racing is now the priority. Training's in maintenance mode. We've been doing all this great stuff. We're just maintaining the fitness we have. You still got to bring to a race the mindset that, you know, what distance running really is. Distance running really is a contest of who can withstand uncomfortable fatigue for the duration of that event, the longest at speeds that at were once quote unquote really fast or you're incapable of doing. So, and sometimes I think athletes think, Oh, I got this new fitness level. Oh, it's just going to be easy to run fast. Now. It's just going <laughs> to be easy. <laughs> and it's like, no, it's going to be easy to run at what pace you used to run at. But distance running is still about trying to push yourself and be as tough as you can be for the duration of that distance and that time of that event, pure and simple. That's what our contest is. It's yeah. not, you know, eye-hand coordination. It has nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I love that phrase because I use it all the time, being being comfortable with being uncomfortable. My kids probably get sick of hearing it. Um, and when you boil down our sport, that's the, that's the essence of it right there. Um, kind of tying this back to our original research question, I think what's interesting is if you look at some of the mindset research, for instance, on stress, we used to always view stress as a negative thing until maybe the past couple of years, there started to be this shift in the research world where they've realized that viewing stress as a negative thing has created some of the negative results from stress, meaning if you have a mindset where you see stress as a challenge, as something to um, overcome but adapt to, just like you would a hard workout, then stress can be a very, very positive thing, even things that we'd, we'd consider as negative stressors, right? So the mindset matters, um, and that's a great example of research, you know, flip-flopping a little bit. Um, but tying, tying this to running a little bit, I think the same thing goes with, with being uncomfortable. I think a lot of time we get in this fear of failure, this fear of pain, um, or fear of stress of racing, um, which, which hampers people's and limit and limits people instead of having this mentality of, well, it's going to suck, but that means, that means I'm doing well. Like if, if it's starting to hurt, if I'm hurting, if I'm pushing, that means I'm getting to the point where my body is saying, all right, we're going to have to start, uh, trying to hold you back and I'm going to keep pushing and that, that being comfortable with, with uncomfortable kind of espouses. But, um, briefly, I'd love to hear some of the ways you try and, and engender that in your athletes that, that trying to get them uncomfortable or comfortable with being uncomfortable. 
Well, I mean, there's many ways to do it, you know, like whether it's compartmentalizing in a longer bout type workout where it's saying, hey, just worry about the next 200 meters or worry about getting to that post or we're going to iterate, like telling them just, you know, chop it up. Don't worry about the duration of the event, but be in the present moment. Like we go back to a lot of mindfulness about being in the here and now. Don't think about the last 3K. Think about the the steps you're taking right here, right now. The other thing is too, like we talked about on previous podcasts, taking away the limitants of, you know, the stopwatch or this or that. I mean, it's ironic, you know, you say that to you, that your, you know, your research test, when you gave your athletes the ability to self-assess or self-modulate their perceived level of exertion, that they were able to score higher values on a zero two max test rather than be constrained by this limitation that, oh, this is hard and, okay, I can settle here and do this and do that. I mean, you know, I always am constantly reminding people, too, of the history of distance training, like, you know, the founding fathers, so to speak, of, like, you know, Emil Zatopek, Ron Clark, Steve Jones, like, these guys who ooze toughness, like, you know, Bill Rogers, just Frank Schroeder rang through a broken foot at the Olympic marathon. I mean, how could they do that? Well, they just had such a high tolerance for pain, you know, that they just knew that that was, that was the deal when you laced them up on race day. It was, it was an era before pacemakers, right? In the early, you know, 50s, 60s, and 70s. It was an era when all you did was just, it was a contest to run as hard as, as long as you can. I mean, Jerry Lindgren's, that's, that's how he became who he became. He said, I'm going to run as hard as I can to help everyone else run fast until I'm completely exhausted. And it started off as a quarter mile in that cross country race and then, you know, but came to the very end when he would just win it all. So I think we've lost in a lot of ways, you know, that explorer mindset, you know, of trying to see what the limits of human capacity and perceived exertion are. And we we're just now, oh, we just want to, the end result is to win. So we want to do all these sitting kick races. Oh, don't go out. Don't go out too hard or don't surge. Or you just want to run an even pace through the whole race. And so you can, you know, duh, 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 whereas like you get Americans running against international athletes, like Kenyans or Ethiopians, and it's a surge fest, man. I mean, you talk to like Chris Derrick or anyone who goes to World Cross, those guys are surging left and right. And Americans like, oh, how do we handle this? Like it's supposed to be this nice, you know, evenly paced race, and what, 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 you know. And so I think it's giving that oral tradition as well as infusing them in like races and races are some races are specifically designed to be races of testing your toughness. Like one, one of the post leads I work with Anna, she had a race this past weekend and this is the highest mileage week she's ever been in. And in this cross country race was Alexa Eckerson, you know, and I was like, I knew Alexa was fit. She, she'd done four by a mile at like 458, 459 on these grass loops at Nike with like four minutes rest, like 10 days before. So, okay, she's in pretty good aerobic condition. And she was going to go all hard. So I just told Anna, Anna you, you know, she's an aspiring Olympic trials qualifying athlete who hasn't quite gone there yet. And, you know, 414 for 1500 type person, you need to go hard with her just to see what that world's like. And I don't care if you blow up. Like, it's some open cross country race that has no meaning at all to anything. And you're in the highest mileage week of your life. You've been training at a, you know, you know, steady club. You're tired. You're sore. Great. Just go as hard with her just go with her as long as you can go and let's see what happens 
And, you know, she went out for a mile and a half with her and, you know, of course, acidosis set in and she just slowly, slowly slowed down. But she said, huh. She walked away from that being like, all right, I was able to go a mile and a half. All right, now what do I need to do to be able to go the full 5K? And, you know, it's a mind shift of like, I'm not afraid to go do this. I paid the penalty by not maybe running as fast as I normally would have had I been a little bit more cautious around my game plan. But it was an opportunity to do that. So, like, moving forward, she's not afraid when, you know, the, it's on the line or, like, the, the chips count, so to speak, um, to, to, to have the opportunity. I think you got to find preparatory races in those non-negotiable situations to do exactly that um, versus saying, like, well, you're going to lose too much face if you blow up in a race or you don't have, you know, a better race than a race before. So it's all about how you psychologically coach and manage your athletes as well and why you do certain races. I mean, you know, one of my pet peeves is a quick tangent that I go on a lot of these is templating a race. Pray to God you never temple a race or I know about it because I will, that just, very few things get me upset, but that is a total disrespect to what the sport of distance running is. Do not race if you're going to just go out and, oh, I'm going to ride tempo. It sends the wrong message to competitors, your athletes, the parents who came to watch you, the grandparents who traveled abroad. Oh, we weren't trying today. We're just tempoing. <laughs> then don't race. Wait. It's all race, not a workout. But, Wait. you know, those are some of the ways, Steve, I do it. What about yourself? I'm with you there. I uh, Yeah, that annoys me. Um, but anyways, uh, so I think you I think you hit the nail on the head again. Uh, no surprise we agree here and, and kind of see things through a mindfulness um, perspective because I think I think one of the things people forget is that training is ingraining like you're ingraining patterns like that's what you're doing yes we're working on the physical component but the mental the behavioral things that you do in practice are the same behavioral things the same mental things you're going to go to in a race right so whatever mental strategy you use to get through your mile repeats or your long tempo run or your long run, whatever it is, like those same strategies are, are going to be the ones that you use in a race. And I think sometimes people figure out ways to cheat their brain and get through practice because it's practice and it's not quite as intense or you have breaks in there. And they figure out cheat systems to get through practice that don't work in a race, if that makes sense. And one of the big things we've tried to emphasize, emphasize is that during practice, you want to practice that conversation that you're having in your head to be exactly what you want in a race. So however you're going to break down the race, you do the same thing in practice. Meaning if you need to break down the tempo run and to make it to the next 400, then break it down into the next 400 because that's what you're going to do in a race. So we do a lot of that, emphasizing that, especially on longer tempo work, especially on longer repeats, is I care almost almost to a degree now more so about what they're thinking and how they're focusing um, that mental energy and bandwidth than how they're running physically, if that makes sense. The other thing that I'm trying, that we just started experimenting with, so I, I don't know how it'll go yet, is we've tried to pe put people in moments of panic and anxiety and stress outside of um, outside of the track or the, the course or whatever. So, for example, 
Uh, last week we took a kid and we stuck him in an ice bath up to his, up to his neck, right? And just said, Hey, stay there. This is really going to suck, but you need to pay, <laughs> like, you need to pay attention to that myth, like whatever conversations going on in your head, like this telling you this is going to suck. Like you need to learn how to deal with it. And the other instructions was, you're going to get the temptation to shiver and shake. I want you to pay attention to that. Notice it and see if you can control it. Right? So, and similarly after that, because we're weird and we do crazy things, we had him jump into our, our, our hot tub and hold his breath underwater. Right? Same thing. Not The emphasis wasn't in holding your breath longer. It was get to that point where you start panicking because you're out of air. And then see if you can deal with it, accept it, almost have a mindfulness approach and go, go beyond it. And, and the funny thing is we did that a couple of times. And then at the end we said, all right, take a breath, go underwater, blow all your air out and then hold your breath with no air, right? It's all out. And that induces a really nice panic effect. Um, but the funny thing is after going through it, he was able to hold his, hold his breath for, almost the same length of time with, with going underwater and blowing all his air out because he'd finally gotten used to kind of having that conversation in his head and knowing that, hey, even when the panic sets, I can still push it a little bit further. Yeah, I mean, that's awesome. You know, that's those types of outside-the-box thinking about how to get buy-in, not only just from you know, an athlete to believe in themselves or an athlete just to be okay with that, you know, repeated exposure or that desensitization is critical, right? We hear about that all the time. All oh, these kids today, they play all these shoot 'em up video games, so they're desensitized to violence. And I mean, there, there's truth to that, right? So if you're desensitized to panic attacks or those types of things, that's going to carry over. I mean, I think sometimes every good coach, in my opinion, should be a very poor man's or lay or just really, you know, ignorant, but willfully or blissfully ignorant, um, you know, psychology uh, buff. Like, I mean, I, that, it's so critical. Like one of the most interesting studies that came across recently was this study where they took pilots, you know, experienced pilots, told them, okay, we're going to do a routine, you know, uh, emergency landing, or we're going to do an emergency landing, you know, test. And they hit the pilots and they, great, they asked them two questions. And they said, okay, how nervous or how confident are, you know, are you or about what's your anxiety about extraneous tasks? And then number two was, you know, how confident are you in your skills, in your mastery about being able to execute this task? And, you know, the correlation was pretty much across the board, the level of anxiety match and their level of self-reported anxiety and self-reported confidence in their skills determined how well they would do or not do on that test. So a lot of times, right, we already know before we get into a race or that type of situation what the outcome is going to be or how we're going to respond to it, but yet, well, we're just hoping for some magic to happen. So, you know, one thing we're trying to implement is what's your level of confidence about being able to execute this type of race strategy or be able to compete at this caliber or this level of confidence to be in a race? you know, and how, what's your anxiety level for that and how much do you believe you can? Because that belief is the most critical thing in the world, sometimes more so if, you know, 
I would not say sometimes, maybe all the time, more so than Trey. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, you're right. I mean, that belief is is critical. If you don't have, if you're not bought in, then you're wasting time. I mean, that that, that that's kind of kind of it, right? If you're not bought into the trip yeah. you're doing, if you're not bought into the belief that you can run whatever your your goals are, your potential is set at, like you're 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 kind of wasting your time like the physical training can only get you so far um true and i don't and i think you know tying this all back together i think that's something that's hands down 100 percent across the board just for human psychology it's not something specific to us weird 15 percent outliers it's something that you see in culture time and time again belief you know is the most important thing in how we behave. And that belief dictates and directs behavior. in whether we're talking running, you know, religion, cultural, you know, norms, you know, what what have you. So, you know, tying that back all together, it's like just be aware about what what's really that you're getting yourself exposed to that has to do with the extreme outliers. And there's someone that like it's cool, it's it's awesome. Like Michael Jordan, he's great. Kobe Bryant, you know, all those types of guys, like, they're awesome. But it's like not everyone can be an outlier like that. And then what other things can you implement maybe that are a little bit more, have a little bit more foundational and broad history of experience upon experience upon experience that you know will be of, of added value to whether it's your training, your relationships with your athletes, or their relationships with each other, or just the whole cultural team that act set in place, period. I am so glad you tied that up because I had no idea how to tie it all back to our original topic. So I found a way. You just used to it, but today I found a way. <laughs> I believed. I believed I could do it, and I did it. There you go, John. <laughs> I was searching my head for how to do that. So, man, you came through in the clutch. Brilliant. That is. Woo. There you go. Did it. All right. Well, awesome. We'll, we'll, we'll end there with belief. I think that uh, that was brilliant. So hopefully you guys got something out of that. And um, yeah, thanks again, John. As always, love the meandering uh, conversations. Yeah, it's uh, it's a potpourri of thoughts and fancies. And thanks, everyone, for hopefully continuing to listen and to continue to get some value out of this. If you don't get value, stop listening. <laughs> you know and if we tell you to stop listening and you keep listening i again applaud your resiliency so we'll be back soon with another awesome podcast but maybe it might only be the crickets listening i don't know <laughs> <laughs> all right sweet deal thanks john all right thanks Steve.